Section 8 of The Spell of Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spell of Egypt by Robert Smythe Hitchens. Chapter 7. Karnak, Part 2. Karnak has no distinctive personality. Built under many kings, its ruins are as complex as were probably once its completed temples, with their shrines, their towers, their courts, their hypostyle halls. As I looked down that evening in the moonlight I saw, softened and made more touching than in daytime, those alluring complexities, brought by the night and kuns into a unity that was both tender and superb. Masses of masonry lay jumbled in shadow and silver, gigantic walls cast sharply defined gloom, obelisks pointed significantly to the sky, seeming, as they always do, to be murmuring a message. Huge doorways stood up like giants, unafraid of their loneliness, and yet pathetic in it. Here was a watching statue, there one that seemed to sleep, seen from afar. Yonder, Queen Hatshepsut, who wrought wonders at Deir al-Bahari, and who is more familiar, perhaps, as Hatasu, had left here traces, and nearer to the right, Ramesses Third had made a temple, surely for the birds, so fond they are of it, so pertinaciously they haunt it. Ramesses II, mutilated and immense, stood on guard before the terrific hall of Seti I, and between him and my platform in the air rose the solitary lotus column that prepares you for the wonder of Seti's hall, which otherwise might almost overwhelm you, unless you are a Scotch lady in a helmet. And Kunz had his temple here by the Sphinx of the Twelfth Ramesses, who created the sun egg and the moon egg, and who was said, only said, alas, to have established on earth the everlasting justice, had his, and still their stones received the silver moon rays, and wake the wonder of men. Tutmos the Third, Tutmos the First, Shishak, who smote the kneeling prisoners and vanquished Jeroboam, Medemet and Mut, Amenhotep I and Amenhotep II, all have left their records or been celebrated at Karnak. Purposely I mingled them in my mind, did not attempt to put them in their proper order, or even to disentangle gods and goddesses from conquerors and kings. In the warm and seductive night Kunz whispered to me, As long ago at Becton I exorcised the demon from the suffering princess, so now I exorcise from these ruins all spirits but my own. To-night these ruins shall suggest nothing but majesty, tranquillity, and beauty. Their records are for Ra, and must be studied by his rays. In mine they shall speak not to the intellectual, but only to the emotions and the soul. And presently I went down, and yielding a complete and happy obedience to Kunz, I wandered along the stupendous vestiges of past eras, dead ambitions, vanished glory, and long outworn belief, and I ignored eras, ambitions, glory, and belief, and thought only of form, and height, of the miracle of blackness against silver, and of the pathos of statues, whose ever-open eyes at night, when one is near them, suggest the working of some evil spell, perpetual watchfulness, combined with eternal inactivity, the unslumbering mind caged in the body that is paralyzed. There is a temple at Karnak that I love, and I scarcely know why I care for it so much. 
It is on the right of the solitary lotus column, before you come to the terrific hall of Seti. Some people pass it by, having but little time, and being hypnotized, it seems, by the more astounding ruin that lies beyond it. And perhaps it would be well, on a first visit, to enter it last, to let its influence be the final one to rest upon your spirit. This is the temple of Ramesses III, a brown place of calm and retirement, an ineffable place of peace. Yes, though the birds love it and fill it often with their voices, it is a sanctuary of peace. Upon the floor the soft sand lies, placing silence beneath your footsteps. The pale brown of walls and columns, almost yellow in the sunshine, is delicate and soothing, and inclines the heart to calm. Delicious, suggestive of a beautiful tapestry, rich and ornate, yet always quiet, are the brown reliefs upon the stone. What are they? Does it matter? They soften the walls, make them more personal, more tender. That, surely, is their mission. This temple holds me for a spell. As soon as I enter it I feel the touch of the lotus, as if an invisible and kindly hand swept a blossom lightly across my face, and downward to my heart. This courtyard, these small chambers beyond it, that last doorway framing a lovely darkness, soothe me even more than the terracotta hermitages of the Certosa of Pavia. And all the statues here are calm with an irrevocable calmness, faithful, through passing years, with a very sober faithfulness to the temple they adorn. In no other place, one feels it, could they be thus at peace, with hands crossed forever upon their breasts, which are torn by no anxieties, thrilled by no joys. As one stands among them, or sitting on the base of a column in the chamber that lies beyond them, looks on them from a little distance, their attitude is like a summons to men to contend no more, to be still, to enter into rest. Come to this temple when you leave the hall of Seti. There you are in a place of triumph. Scarlet, some say, is the color of a great note sounded on a bugle. This hall is like a bugle call of the past, thrilling even now down all the ages with a triumph that is surely greater than any other triumphs. It suggests blaze, blaze of scarlet, blaze of bugle, blaze of glory, blaze of life and time, of ambition and achievement. In these columns, in the putting up of them, dead men sought to climb to sun and stars, limitless in desire, limitless in industry, limitless in will. And at the tops of the columns blooms the lotus, the symbol of rising. What a triumph in stone this hall was once, what a triumph in stone its ruin is today. Perhaps among temples it is the most wondrous thing in all Egypt as it was, no doubt, the most wondrous temple in the world, among temples, I say, for the Sphinx is, of all the marvels of Egypt, by far the most marvellous. The grandeur of this hall almost moves one to tears, like the marching past of conquerors stirs the heart with leaping thrills at the capacities of men. Through the thickest of columns, tall as forest trees, the intense blue of the African sky stares down, and their great shadows lie along the warm and sunlit ground. Listen, there are voices chanting. Men are working here, working as men worked how many thousands of years ago. But these are calling upon the Mohammedanist God as they slowly drag to the appointed places the mighty blocks of stone. And it is today a Frenchman who oversees them. Help! Help! 
Allah give us help. Help, help. Allah give us help. The dust flies up about their naked feet. Triumph and work, work succeeded by the triumph all can see. I like to hear the workmen's voices within the hall of Seti. I like to see the dust stirred by their tramping feet. And then I like to go once more to the little temple, to enter through its defaced gateway, to stand alone in its silence between the rows of statues with their arms folded upon their quiet breasts, to gaze into the tender darkness beyond, the darkness that looks consecrated, to feel that peace is more wonderful than triumph, that the end of things is peace. Triumph and deathless peace, the bugle call in silence, these are the notes of Karnak. End of section 8